Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, depending on where you are. My name is Elizabeth Bro. I'm a visiting fellow at AEI, and I'm thrilled to be introducing this event that will uh, later be be, uh, moderated by um, everybody's favorite, Corey Sharkey. But I'm thrilled to introduce it because uh, the resilience uh, of our societies, and in, in particular, the resilience of our infrastructure, is a vital issue that has been a vital issue for, for a long time. But now it's even more vital because um, our adversaries, as we all well know, are uh, trying to um, disrupt various parts of, of our uh, infrastructure because it's uh, it's uh, an act that comes with no repercussions for the aggressor uh, or very few repercussions. It's also an act with which, uh, or acts uh, with which you can severely weaken our uh, the, the targeted society, not just the company, the operator, but the society as a whole. And we don't even need to think about what might happen if, if the grid in our respective countries were to be uh, targeted, uh, successfully targeted by cyber attack or another uh, uh, non-kinetic attack or uh, transportation, airports, seaports, and indeed uh, the energy provision. And, and it just so happens that on this very day, uh, the Finns have had to shut off, um, or shut off, not completely shut down, but shut off um, a nuclear power plant, which started leaking radiation, which means that energy provision is being affected. Um, so th- uh, this again demonstrates how vital it is to, to take resilience and especially resilience of CNI seriously. And we should bear in mind that unlike during the Cold War, most CNI today is privately owned, which makes it doubly complicated for governments to to uh, to act because they they can't really decide anything on their own regarding the operation of, of uh, various CNI installations. They have to work with the private sector, which is a good thing. It can be done. And so we are here to, her- to hear, uh, we're here today to hear from, from uh, two representatives from other countries, uh, in particular the Czech Republic and Finland, about how they do it. And also hear from uh, the Deputy Secretary, Secretary General of NATO, because NATO is uh, putting more focus on resilience, very wisely so. And so with that, I'll turn the floor over to Corey. But uh, just to say first that um, in Finland, they had plenty of action today, not just on the on the nuclear power plant uh, front, but also with regards to the foreign minister who is in a bit of trouble, which means that the whole cabinet has had to go to parliament to take questions. So the interior minister has been replaced by her deputy, who is equally um, qualified and knowledgeable about uh, Finland's uh, phenomenal efforts in resilience. So over to you, Corey. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, It is 6.30 in the morning here in the great golden state of California, by which I mean to say a perfect time to talk about societal resilience uh, and how free countries can work together uh, to bring their economic strengths into strengthen the resilience of their societies. Such a crucial question for us all. And I'm extraordinarily pleased this morning to be able to moderate a discussion between three exceptional speakers, NATO Deputy Secretary General Mircha Joanna, 
Finnish State Secretary for the Interior, Olipolka Parvianen, and uh, Deputy Defense Minister of the Czech Republic, Tomasz Kopechny. It's, uh, these are hugely important issues and ones that our adversaries seem to have gotten a step ahead of us all on. And one of the things that makes the NATO alliance and the transatlantic partnership such a robust and longstanding one is the way all of us work together to emulate best practices in other countries and to find solutions together. I'm extremely pleased. I'm sorry, I should have said I'm Corey Shockey, the head of foreign and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm extremely pleased to introduce to you Deputy Sec NATO Secretary General Joanna. Welcome, my friend. Please tell us how the NATO Alliance is thinking about these challenges. Uh, thank you so much, Corey. Good to see you again. And I, I salute all my friends at the American Enterprise Institute, dear friends from many, many years now going back. And I'm also very honored to, to share uh, the platform with such distinguished speakers uh, uh, as Dr. Kopejny and Dr. Oi Hasalo. Um, uh, thank you also for uh, including NATO in this very important conversation. Um, and uh, uh, we're also happy that our NATO uh, public diplomacy division is also running a number of events, trying to, to bring the issue of resilience uh, to the forefront of our conversation. Uh, you know, as an alliance, we face and we faced and will face many challenges. And uh, some of them we have been dealing with uh, for many years. Look at Russia, they continue to seek to undermine our democracy. Uh, they're expanding their military, they're attempting to dominate its neighbors like uh, Ukraine, Georgia, or the Republic of Moldova. Um, these things are not new. There's also the scourge of terrorism that uh, continues to haunt our societies and our mission in Afghanistan to ensure it can deliver uh, a place which will be, uh, you know, not becoming again a safe haven for terrorists to launch attacks on our lands or on their neighbors is also something which is very important. There's also things that are relatively newer, which is the rise of China. Not an adversary to NATO per se, but a global actor whom we must understand. Uh, and with its rise, uh, it brings a lot of challenges, a lot of problems, a lot of opportunities, and we have to act accordingly. And of course, the use of uh, emerging technologies uh, as instruments of disruption and instruments of power. We are speaking of geotechnology. Uh, we, are, uh, we are in the midst of the one of the most intense technological races in recent history. And for the political West and for our democratic societies, this is also part of a very important conversation because maintaining the security of our vital technologies is central in, in a way in which we can do not only defending our, our people, but also protecting everything we do from airports to power plants to infrastructures. So this uh, persistent con uh, confrontation with uh, novel and uh, impactful uh, uh, issues is also uh, becoming even more complicated because we start seeing more and more of the black swans, uh, tsunami kind risks. And the pandemic is just one example uh, of things that might come, uh, that eventually would come. And I think the issue of resilience that we are talking to today about is at the essence of the lessons learned 
from this pandemic and also from the other things. NATO is the business of making sure that all these comp complicated issues are not, would not come together in a sort of a perfect storm and making sure that health crisis or environmental crisis or financial crisis will not become a security crisis. So that's where NATO is very, 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 very important. Because resilience is a reflex uh, and a remedy at the same time. Resilient society is our first line of defense. Our security and prosperity depends, uh, depend on this. In years ahead, we have to put a much greater emphasis uh, on resilience. And this is not only uh, about resilience of our governments. It's a whole of society resilience and engaging uh, with the triple helix of uh, government, a private sector, essentially important in engaging the private sector and also engaging our, our civil societies. This is what societal resilience is, is all about. So that's why I'm so happy to be today uh, with you and also thank again the American Enterprise Institute for, for bringing this topic to, to a broader uh, audience's attention. Of course, NATO has only worked closely with industry, uh, but also the nature of this relationship is, is changing. I'm chairing the innovation board in NATO, and we know that much of the, uh, uh, of the innovation uh, in technology, in biotechnology, in AI, in quantum computing, in human enhancement, in space, in everything is done by the private sector. So if we speak about resilience and security, we are in a, in a way obliged to talk more to our private sector, to the innovators that are not today only in governments, but also they are in, 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 in the private sector, in academia. And this is also very important for our uh, communications, for our equipments, and also for our armed forces as NATO and also as, as, as allies individually. So this effort is very important to us. Of course, there are other dimensions of resilience in a more sectoral way, if you want. We speak in NATO for many years already, for five years, uh, about the baseline requirements on, on, on resilience from infrastructure, from energy, from telecoms, now with logistics and supply chain. And I think this kind of conversation is adding to the breadth and the depth of this conversation where NATO is already exceptionally, exceptionally uh, well equipped. We are also, uh, uh, you know, in NATO, uh, resilience is part of our DNA because our founding fathers uh, in uh, writing uh, the brilliant piece uh, of, uh, of, uh, of our constitution, the Washington Treaty, in article three, they already spoke uh, about uh, the obligation for allies individually and collectively to improve their resilience to attack. Of course, the Washington Treaty was conceived and imagined in a moment of uh, Cold War, the Soviet Union, but the principle is relevant today and probably is more relevant today than ever before in a complex and unpredictable world. To maintain our security, NATO allies need robust supply chains and civilian infrastructure. We need to protect civilian controlled undersea cables and satellite systems, which and upon which our communications rely. During large operations and military exercises, for example, around 90%, 90% of military transport relies today on civilian ships, railways, and aircraft. There is no difference between civilian security and military strength. They're one and the same. So NATO allies have already agreed high standards for resilience in areas including the continuity of government, transport, energy, food and water supply. We are now looking as we speak 
into the security of our infrastructure supply chains, as I mentioned. And also we are now contemplating screening templates, methods to screen foreign investments in our key, in our key uh, infrastructures and also in our key intellectual and technology uh, companies. Let's take telecoms for an example. In 2019, so before the pandemic, NATO updated our baseline resilience requirement for civil communications networks, including 5G, a topic which is much discussed. Allies must conduct thorough risk and vulnerability assessments, identify and mitigate cyber threats, and assess the consequences of foreign ownership, control, or direct investment of critical infrastructure. It is crucial that 5G infrastructure is safe, secure, and trusted. We have, been, we have seen significant and welcome progress here, for example, through the US Clean Network Initiative, and also a very good example of NATO, US, EU cooperation, European Union's 5G toolbox, and together with NATO's baseline requirements on resilience. This is why here at NATO, we work closely with the EU, with the private sector, with civil society and academia, because as I mentioned earlier, resilience is a national responsibility. It is also a collective effort. And also our defense ministers, at their virtual meeting only last month, they received a comprehensive report on the state of our critical infrastructure. While we have made progress, there are still vulnerabilities. For instance, on foreign control of critical components on which our societies and our militaries rely, we have to further strengthen our resilience. We need to one go, go further and agree stronger requirements for resilience. At the meeting next year of NATO heads of states and government, we do hope that this will be, and this will be on the agenda of our leaders when our leaders will be meeting next year. So as we go through the current global crisis, we rediscover our reflex towards partnerships with like minded organizations like the EU, the OECD, the World Bank or the UN, uh, cooperation among governments, cooperation among our civil uh, uh, and private sectors. And I think this kind of deep cooperation within uh, the bodies of our societies is key to our, to our success. Because together we can tackle the novel elements and find solutions to otherwise very complex, very long lasting equations of risks and threats, because together we are stronger and more efficient. And this is very, very important as the challenges we face in the political West. And we face a challenge like we've never had probably in centuries. We are also at the, at the moment, not only a competition for on geopolitical grounds, not only on geotechnological grounds, not only on financial and economic grounds, but also to the very resilience of our democratic societies and the competition for the commanding heights on how human societies are organized is now raging. We are open, free societies. This is our strength. This is the value foundation on which NATO is based. This is what have been building for decades and decades. So when we speak about resilience, please also think not only in terms of physical resilience in, 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 in front of so many complicated issues, but also look uh, at the deeper meaning of resilience, which is the very essence of defending our democratic way of life. And also I have to say, speaking of our partners, look at uh, NATO partners like uh, Finland working together with the private sector to strengthen their resilience. Sweden, another very important partner of ours is doing the same. We are learning from each other. We are working together. And we stand ready as NATO 
to, to continue to engage even more ambitiously and more thoroughly with the private sector, with academia, with like-minded nations and partners around the world. And this is why we'll continue to put re resilience at the very heart of what we do in NATO, because as I mentioned, and Ian Stortober mentioned just a few days ago, our first line of defense starts with resilient societies. That's where we are coming from, that's where we are, and that's will continue to go forward in the, in the period ahead. So thank, thank you so very much for having me and look forward uh, to our conversation uh, down the road. Thank you so much, Deputy Secretary General Joanna. I especially liked your, the way you conceptualized uh, a triple helix because it builds on all three elements of resilience in free societies. That is not just our governments, not just our businesses uh, and their capacity for innovation, but the strengths that civil society brings to helping us find uh, solutions to problems that are sustainable and voluntary, which I think is an important part of the resilience of free societies. I so appreciate you being with us this morning for this conversation. And I now wanna to turn to two distinguished practitioners of resilience. First to you, uh, Minister Kopechny, who is the Director of Industrial Cooperation, uh, the Industrial Cooperation Department in the Czech Ministry of Defense. Thank you for being with us, sir. Won't you please share your perspective? Um, good morning and good afternoon, good afternoon everyone. It's a great privilege and honor to be in such an esteemed company. And also for me, it's a great um, honor to be able to present uh, what we have been doing at the Czech Ministry of Defense for the past months. Because also with the great cooperation with Elizabeth Bro, uh, we have started a very specific project that aims at many of the challenges that have been laid uh, in front of us uh, by, my, by, my, by the previous speaker. Um, so first of all, I will focus mostly on the technological resilience because I believe that it is the key area of geopolitical confrontation that is about to come. Um, we see that this is clearly not an operational domain in the traditional sense. We have also seen in the past that it's quite hard in a democratic alliance uh, to have a consensus on what the new uh, confrontation lines in terms of operational domains can be in, in NATO. So even though uh, some of, of the first attacks on our allies have happened already in 2007, the latest, when we, when we saw the Tallinn aggression by, by the Russian hackers, uh, it's, it only has been at, in, the, in the Warsaw summit when it was acknowledged as an operational domain, I mean, the cyberspace. Uh, the space domain for space operations have been acknowledged to be an operational domain by December last year. and we are seeing that more and more uh, the technologies that are behind our operational domains are clearly targeted and used as a frontline for the at least competition, if not a direct aggression of our adversaries all over the world. So I believe that it is important to see the technological domain and technologies as such that are part of the critical infrastructure as the new domain of strategic interest. And I will just briefly sum up what leads me and what led us here in the Czech Republic to, to such a view. We clearly see the importance of critical infrastructure. 
all over where we can where we can look at. And for years we have been doing NATO exercises, national exercises of defense on the national level, involving not only the defense infrastructure, the, the companies, the, the militaries, uh, the ministries, and the government, um, but also the private sector, which is quintessential in achieving any goals. But it has not only been in the military domain when we have had such an exercise. Uh, there has been a life exercise for the past nine months on how each of our countries can handle the COVID crisis when it comes to securing um, the necessary supplies, which are, to be honest, very low-tech. To have a face mask, to have respirators, it's not something that would be swallowing billions of dollars of R&D as, as the military technologies. And yet, um, still, there were many obstacles and challenges for us to achieve what we needed for our populations. And also, thanks to a great collaboration from NATO and the EU, we were able to secure ourselves. But this was an easy task, technologically speaking. Also, there is a, um, there is a giant elephant in the room when it comes to technologies. Uh, and it has been labeled um, as, as, as a challenge, as a threat uh, rather recently. And that's the buildup of the 5G infrastructure, which has been discussed for years. But for the past year or two, it has been a remarkable geopolitical issue all over the world. Uh, but 5G is just a trigger. It's just a trigger of what is coming, what is ahead of us when it comes to the geopolitical, geotechnological competition and competition with our adversaries. Uh, there is already so much going on. I have mentioned the Tallinn attacks um, by, by, the, by, by the cyber forces of the Russian Federation. Uh, but it's, it's not only that. Also during crisis, uh, some of our the Czech hospitals have been uh, attacked by um, proxy uh, adversaries uh, that have basically tried to put them out of, out of work uh, during the worst peak of, of, of the epidemic. Uh, by March and May. It was also thanks to our allies, prevented. Uh, but the attacks at critical infrastructure mean that they need to be considered a new field of geopolitical competition and warfare in some cases. Uh, it's a matter of national security. Also, it's not only about acknowledging that this needs to be addressed. addressed. It's, it, it, it is vital for us to already discuss practical means. And I will uh, say why it is so important to, to call it with the real names, the situation we are at. Um, the free market is a principle that all our economies are dependent on. And yet in some sectors of the economy, we cannot just follow the rules blindly when our adversaries misuse it. So we need to have a proper look and proper characterization at what is the critical infrastructure, what is really important for the national security, and um, what is also to be done with it. So we have started an exercise in the Czech Republic, a long-term project. It, long -term project. It's not a um, one-time show-up party. It's really a long-term process. Uh, we have started a so-called gray zone exercise. And for this, uh, my thanks go to Elizabeth Bro again, who really wrote a, a masterpiece uh, when it comes to to the processes. We have been discussing this with our allies and partners from all over the world for the past weeks and months. And we have started it last week with our industries. And by the end of January, we should have already gone through the first stage. And how, what does it mean, gray zone exercise? It means 
concrete steps, concrete communication, and wargaming scenarios, tabletop exercises with the strategic critical infrastructure industries and R&D institutions, because they are targeted too. It means at first we define who, which sectors are really strategic. Everybody wants to be strategic. When there are incentives, yeah, everybody wants to get some, some more money, but we need to do it from the perspective of the national security. Um, we need to then address who are the companies, what are the products that we need to protect through screening of investment, but also how can we promote them uh, in them being uh, um, economically viable for the upcoming future. So the gray zone exercise itself aims at identifying the priorities uh, and working with the, with, the, with the companies towards increasing their resilience, uh, towards making them more competitive, but it's never only uh, on the national level. First, we need to exchange information on behalf of the government and, uh, and, and the, the local, the national companies. Then we need to do some education courses about security threats. They are very interested in having this for free when it comes to cyber threats. Our NSA is working on it with us. And uh, it's really something that is paid, paid by gold in most cases when you go for commercial options. And we do it as a government for free because we need them and they need us in certain crisis scenarios. And third, we do these simulations and uh, crisis management scenarios and tabletop exercises. So we want them to incorporate the aspects of national security into their decision-making processes so that their, their risk managers do not only see threats as something that is involved uh, in their capital, in their assets, in maybe a local shutdown of energy, but in the national threats that we are facing uh, when the critical infra infrastructure is hit. Uh, of course, uh, our adversaries, they use their tools. Um, so we need to focus on key areas such as that data privacy, export controls and FDA screening so that we do not harm our societies, our companies in the process. But still, our adversaries, I've been talking about cyber attacks, but it's not the only area uh, that, uh, that our companies are afraid of. Uh, the venture capital um, funds uh, from China or Russia, and mostly from China, are globally established by now. There are thousands of uh, not acknowledged funds that are aimed at acquiring critical technologies, disruptive technologies from all over the world for the benefit of the People's Liberation Army. And of course, it's hard to prevent this with the current legislative framework. So we need to address this issue. And there are multiple ways that we can do that. Uh, we can, of course, go through the screening of investment through the local, uh, through the local national legislation. We have such a legislation on the EU level as well. But also, we can establish our own venture capital funds to support our companies in this, in this, in this perspective. Um, and this is basically something that should lead to an understanding that even though we cherish and, and, and respect and we are fully binded by, by the WTO rules, by the free market principles, we need to have some of the critical technologies protected. Uh, and just to give you a few hints about what worked in our case, uh, it's, um, it's of course, long-term built trust, incentivization uh, for the companies, uh, they could be called strategic suppliers and uh, also um, really involvement of the top management 
from all of those all of those companies. Um, so we have some experience, which is rather good. Uh, the companies uh, are happily working with us on this. First, we started with the big companies, then we go to the EDTs, the Emerging Disruptive Technology Companies, R&D laboratories, and so on. Um, but this is not something that can be solved on a national level. And that's why I believe it is quintessential for also the Alliance, NATO, and the EU to make strategic technologies uh, and the strategic sector technologies one of its domains of strategic interest. Uh, by this, I would probably end my introductory speech and I will be very much looking forward for the discussion. Thank you very much, Minister Kopechny. And I'm especially enthusiastic to hear the similarities in the approaches that are working successfully for the Czech Republic and the areas that um, the Deputy Secretary General of NATO is identifying. This, the ability to use the tools of free societies to protect and advance free societies, I think is so important. And it's really interesting how the many different ways you are pioneering that. I wanna turn now to our third speaker, another leader in this area. And, uh, and Oli Poika Parvianen has the ideal background uh, for helping us navigate this problem. He's an entrepreneur. He's worked in city government as a deputy mayor of Tampere and also a national elected politician. So many of the different uh, air ways we need to approach this problem. And Finland is the world's most prepared country in this regard. So State Secretary Parvianen, won't you please tell us, I'm sorry, I should also say thank you so much for making time to be with us on a busy day for your government when you are dealing with one of the very challenges we are talking about here this morning. Thank you, State Secretary Parvianen. Thank you. Uh, it's a great to be here uh, virtually present in this meeting. Uh, the Minister of Internal, Internal Affairs of Finland, Maria Ohisalo, would have loved to participate, but well, like mentioned, uh, there are some urgent issues pressing in the government. And regarding the topic of our, our meeting today, uh, it is uh, an interesting curiosity that uh, like was in the even international news that there was this incident in a Finnish nuclear power plant today. Uh, it is luckily and glad I'm glad it is under control, but we have to always be serious when this, this sort of critical infrastructure is under, uh, un uh, under unexpected circumstances. Uh, and to this, uh, it, it is uh, an interesting thing to note that there is another power plant uh, being constructed uh, right next to the one that was shut down uh, temporarily today. And it is based also that the control systems of that uh, power plant are um, using this unique uh, way of using analog uh, backup and controlling system in order that, for example, you cannot uh, manipulate the system via cyber attack for instance. So there's always the uh, possibility that we have to prepare ourselves for everything. But I have prepared a little speech for you. Uh, it, it is the minister's speech, which I have tuned a little bit. Uh, so uh, I, I think I will proceed to that. Uh, I, I think we've reached a stage in the coronavirus pandemic where we can already reflect on lessons for, uh, for ongoing and future crisis. 
And already at this point, it is clear that societal resilience is at the heart of responding efficiently to a long-lasting crisis situation like the one we are currently experiencing worldwide. During the past few years, resilience and critical infrastructure protection have featured strongly in international discussions and discussions within EU and NATO. Our societies are characterized by a web of complex interdependencies where private sector actors are principal operators in many fields of services and infrastructure. The resilience of modern societies is not restricted to state boundaries or a single actor. This is something that the previous speakers has, have also addressed. So in this intervention, I would like to highlight two areas relevant to the topic of this event. Firstly, comprehensive security and societal resilience as tools to maintain well-being and societal order. And secondly, the importance of national security when assessing critical infrastructure resilience uh, against both old and new threats, such as hybrid influencing and, for example, fake news even. So, first on comprehensive security and societal resilience. Uh, I want to highlight as national practices we can be proud of Finland. This, this is something that I think we have uh, achieved quite well, and we have our own um, diamond-shaped diamond strategy of um, comprehensive security on use. Finland has been using a so-called comprehensive security model, which I mentioned, in its civil preparedness for decades. The model rests on the assumption that we should be prepared for all kinds of crises, from everyday accident and grey zone threats to all the way to military conflict or even to a war. I see internal security, uh, the mandate of my ministry, uh, in a wide sense. For example, reducing marginalization and poverty, it promotes internal security and contributes to resilience. Tackling climate change reduces frequency and magnitude of na natural disasters. Fighting hate speech promotes social inclusion and prevents hate crimes, and so on. The comprehensive security model relies on cooperation between authorities and other relevant actors, the private sector, public partners, in education, social and healthcare sectors, and of course, NGOs. Another key element is building security of supply with national and international arrangements and maintaining sufficient in-country reserve storages. The ongoing pandemic has really demonstrated in practice how important security of supply and well-functioning all of society preparedness is for our everyday resilience. In Finland, we have maintained reserve storages, but COVID-19 showed us too that keeping a good stock of essential equipment is not enough. You also have to build good supply, production and acquisition chains to last weeks and even months. And of course, if you look at Finland uh, from a global map, we are in a certain way stranded in an island. In Finland, uh, a broad variety of private sector operators, uh, it's about a thousand companies, uh, and relevant public authorities form a cooperation network called the National Security of Supply Organization. These pools work together across sectors to ensure security of supply in critical functions of society, such as telecommunications, logistics, food supply, financial services, and energy. 
When we think about resilience, the role of individual people cannot also be overlooked. Resilient people are in the foundation of a resilient society. They play a major role in the preparedness alongside government institutions. Based on my experience so far, one of the strengths in my country has been people's trust in authorities, for example, in following guidelines and restrictions. In addition, I want to emphasize the importance of a good societal social safety net in promoting national resilience. This is a cornerstone of a Nordic welfare society. For example, if you don't provide people with necessary health care during a pandemic, undiagnosed and untreated diseases will be a heavy burden for resilience later on. As another example, I want to mention homelessness. Of course, Finland has set a goal for no homelessness in Finland in 2027 and to halve homelessness by 2023. This is an ambitious goal, but our efforts are paying off. The number of homeless people is declining. Homeless people are extremely vulnerable to different crimes. And of course, we are living in quite harsh climate. This is a matter of internal security and resilience in many ways, although often considered only a social security issue. But there is a strict uh, connection between uh, this uh, phenomenon and also uh, into, to, be, to certain, uh, certain crime levels, for example. As an example of promoting resilience and awareness, I would also like to mention the Finnish national defense courses. I have also been on one. Usually I have a pin here, but now it's in a different jacket. Uh, the goal of these courses is to provide leaders in both civilian and military organizations with an overview of Finland's foreign security and defense policy. The courses also promote collaboration between key people working in different areas of comprehensive security. It means that when we participate participate the courses, we meet other decision makers in key areas of our society, and we practically practice on how to work together in unexpected circumstances and in crisis situation. For example, we ran a simulation where I was a minister at the time, and now I get to use that uh, what lesson learned from there as a state secretary in an actual ministry. And then uh, to critical infrastructure protection. Uh, to a, Maybe uh, I would start by saying that it is clear that European societies are characterized by a web of complex interdependencies where private sector actors have a growing role. Uh, the changed security environment has forced us to consider how disruptions in critical services and technologies can escalate the destabilization of our societies. So we need to adapt our cr critical infrastructure protection to the challenges of a fast evolving technological and geopolitical context. We must also understand emerging vulnerabilities that impact on our national security. Several national security challenges are connected to critical infrastructures. These include, for example, exploiting cyber-related vulnerabilities in, in our data communication systems, networks and services, and the use of foreign direct investment, FDI, to negatively influence present and future infrastructure operations. And from a cyber perspective, a single incident in one infrastructure may have significant cascading effects on other sectors. For example, financial services depend on the continuity of the other parts of critical infrastructure, such as telecommunications and energy and so on. Such dependencies go both ways and major disruptions in any of these sectors will have serious repercussions on other. So we need con to ensure continuity of critical services.
And as Finland shares the security environment with NATO, we follow closely the resilience agenda that the alliance is currently building. Allies see the connection between resilience and defense. Weak resilience means weak defense. An increasing amount of critical infrastructures and services are also dependent on transboundary connections and resources outside our borders. Consequently, the Finnish model places a strong emphasis on private, public and international cooperation in safeguarding national resilience. During the, our EU presidency last year, we took important steps on the European Critical Infrastructure Protection Age Agenda. We encouraged open discussion on the possibility of designating certain infrastructures as pan-European. For example, all EU member states are dependent on space infrastructure. In the near future, Europe will also have a fully interconnected European electricity grid with geographically distributed power production and cross-border distribution and consumption. During our presidency, we highlighted interdependencies between the European and North American economies and the importance to better protect our shared critical infrastructure, such as undersea fiber optic cables in the Atlantic, which were also mentioned uh, in a way earlier. Uh, I have understood that the European Commission will soon be proposing revised critical infrastructure EU legislation. Uh, the vulnerabilities of critical infrastructures should, I think, be seen from an all hazards and whole of government perspective. We should focus on the resilience and continuity of services and the capacity to respond to a wide spectrum of threats. And last, to conclude, uh, as we all know, hybrid influencing is linked with the security situation in Europe. The critical infrastructure services of a society can be subject to many forms of hybrid influencing. We've seen this. We have to take it into account that rapid technological development and digitalization have contributed to hybrid actions such as hostile cyber activities, and we must counter these together. So, to conclude, uh, in a country and a world with interdependencies across sectors of society, good social policy makes good security policy. This doesn't mean that we don't need to ensure adequate resources to security sector also, but instead it means that security actors alone are not enough to make a society resilient and safe. We need both. Thank you. I, I took a little overtime. Thank you very much, State Secretary. I'm struck listening to both you uh, and Minister Kovhekny at how strongly trust and education came through as essential elements. And it, it seems to me something really worth emphasizing that governments can to some extent regulate and incentivize activity in our civil society and in our businesses, but there is no substitute for trust or education or the voluntary participation and initiative of our societies. Um, Deputy Secretary, I wonder, at, now that you have heard these two distinguished practitioners talk about what their countries are doing, what, what threads would you want to pull uh, as priorities for NATO in this space? Which of the things that you've heard this morning should we build on most urgently? I, I do believe that there is a, uh, a quite impressive um, synergy in the two or three approaches that we, we, have, we have heard uh, today. And again, thank you for bringing us on the same platform. Because I think the first observation that we have realized that the whole of government uh, or only national security institutions are not longer 
sufficient. They are indispensable, but not sufficient to cope with the ever growing definition of security. Security has evolved as definition and as threats in such a remarkable way that today we just cannot do it only in government or even in a more limited way in national security establishments, as important as they are and will continue to be forever. The second observation I heard uh, uh, from everyone is that engaging uh, private sector is paramount. Uh, because most of the activities that we do, including the ones, uh, as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, in which we depend in terms of defense, uh, crisis management, God forbid, tension uh, or, or, or even war, uh, we depend on, on, on the private sector. We transport our, uh, our equipments with, with private sector. Uh, sometimes private sector is, uh, you know, one of the uh, players into, into, this, into this situation. Where I would like to see and to, to do more, and this is what we're trying to do also in NATO, is to make sure that we go more and find better ways to engage also the third pillar of the triple helix, which is civil society, NGOs, academia, and yes, the citizen himself and herself. Because in the end, as I mentioned that we cannot be safe and secure if our resilience as a society is not strong enough. What's a society in the end? It's a composition of the citizens of that nation or that organization, in the case of NATO, almost 1 billion people. And now we see a, a, a certain fragility that is at the heart of our democratic system. Also because of the bombardment with information and uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation hybrid, as our, um, our Finnish uh, friends have a superb center uh, uh, in Helsinki uh, on, on hybrid. This is where the whole world uh, is, is basically um, uh, interacting with the experience that they've developed and congratulations for this. I'm very happy that our Czech friends and allies are also working into this kind of scenario-based um, wargaming uh, preparation things. But if I would be putting a little bit more emphasis uh, is how can we make sure uh, trust is one of those components, but probably it's a little bit uh, even, even deeper than that. How can we make sure that we, 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 we communicate and we, we engage with our citizenry uh, into this operation? And this leads again, uh, as you mentioned, to education. Um, the earlier we engage our, our future leaders and our, 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 you know, today junior, tomorrow uh, adult uh, uh, segments of our populations into this kind of conversations, the better off uh, all of us uh, would be. Rest assured, when it comes to NATO, we have a certain, I mentioned uh, resilience in the DNA of NATO. We also have something else in the DNA of NATO, which is permanent adaptation to changing environments. And when our defense ministers decided that we'll be putting on the, on the table of, our, of, of the NATO summit of our leaders in the next part of, in the first part of 2021, the topic of resilience, we mean business. And we stand ready to engage with relevant experiences at the national level, a sub-national level, sometimes city halls, uh, sometimes you know, a small university in somewhere is not only the big names, they could and they are developing tremendous ex expertise. I, we are calling on a sort of a global partnership on resilience amongst uh, the political West. We learn from our friends in Australia, a great deal of things. 
we are learning a lot from uh, friends uh, like, I don't know, Israel uh, on, on many other things. So I do believe that this is such a topical issue for, for the future of our democratic world that we have to really come together, work together. European Union is a very important player. Uh, they have the power of regulation. They have the, the, the many instruments at their disposal. NATO has the power of standardization. NATO brand is, is sterling. So the moment we put the stamp of approval that this is a NATO thing, that NATO has basically put a, a seal of approval on, 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 on a project, on a topic, on, 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 even on, on a conversation like ours, this is also something that we should put, uh, put to, to use. We are in this together, my friends. Uh, there is no individual solution to this. We are in a way forced to work together and do things together. I think those are such important insights. And also the reassurance that comes out of the remarks of all three of you, that even though this feels tumultuous, that is our societies feel under attack in unusual ways, you know, that, that we would have to protect our power plants and our transmission cables is a new level, an expansion of traditional notions of security. And it's happening in a time of technological upheaval where all of us are having to figure out how to deal with social media and, and new ways of connection. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of two really important things that for me come out of all three of your comments. The first is that the fact that we are able to defend our society so well in the center of the national security space, that is the success of NATO, the success of partnerships like those that many of our countries have with Finland. The success at the center of the national security space is what has driven our adversaries to these new kinds of threats. So we, we need to remember that the threats that we're dealing with now are the result of our success in the middle of the agenda. And the second thing that comes out for me from all three of your remarks is how dynamic free societies can and the organizations that we build together like NATO, we have the ability to adapt, to innovate. In fact, that's our strong suit. And so we shouldn't lose confidence that we are gonna find effective ways to manage these challenges. Um, State, State Secretary, I wonder if I could get you to say a little bit more about uh, the Finland example that the Deputy Secretary was talking about, the, the Center for Hybrid Warfare that that Finland has. How did you guys get so far out in front of it, the rest of us? And what should the rest of us do to catch up? Uh, okay, uh, I tried to be brief. Uh, thank you for the remarks. Um, the center of um, hybrid questions is, uh, well, of course, the project was based on need. Uh, to, to put it frankly, we've had our share of uh, hybrid influencing in the past and in the present. And of course, uh, we've acknowledged that, that uh, exchanging ideas and working together with uh, like-minded uh, partners uh, is of a great advantage. Uh, so um, basically, uh, the center works uh, with the approval of the government and we 
And we try to sort of use it as a tool to get the best practices on how to react to many kinds of events. For example, if I remember correctly, there was a, uh, a trial regarding, um, regarding uh, pandemic threats just uh, sometime before the COVID situation. But of course, uh, that's, this hybrid center is just part of the uh, overall strategy spectrum where we have to uh, use many tools. Uh, it's a difficult question, but uh, it's sort of, it's part of the comprehensive security diamond. Thank you. Minister Kopechny, may I come to you to get a sense for, you know, you're moving, uh, the Czech Republic is moving so fast to try and see how to handle gray zone warfare. What help would you want from the rest of us for the success of what you are trying to achieve? Um, well, I didn't expect this, uh, but I mean, thank you so much just for raising it uh, because I guess that for the continuous success of our endeavor, the key issue will be really to address it on a multilateral level, on a sort of alliance of the willing who will be willing to share not only their expertise, but also their, uh, at times, sensitive information and at what is lacking in what they found uh, when it comes to their critical infrastructure and their resilience in terms of security of supply. Because one of the main findings that we have already seen so far is not the targeting of the main societies, of the main defense manufacturers, for instance, itself. It's the supply chains that our adversaries go after the first. It's the research and development bureaus and institutions. It's the universities. So it's the very, very high level, high tier level, or the very, very low visibility items that are targeted the easiest. And they are rarely found always in the same country. So uh, the sooner we share this information, the sooner we share this experience, uh, the better we can address how to deal, how to identify what could be our missing link out of a sudden, because some, something is working right now perfectly, but just like that, it can be turned off because one link will be missing because one company will be shut down, moved somewhere else, the production will stop or even worse, the production will be full of malwares. It will be full of hidden agents, uh, like speaking in the, in the cyber domain, for instance. So, so this is what would be definitely helpful uh, to basically embrace the urgency of the issue, also to have enough, I guess, patience and courage and, and diplomacy uh, in us uh, to share this to our leaders, to understand that it's not really only about 5G. 5G is consuming so much about the public space, about the media space, and about the attention of the leaders consequently. But this will be essential for all the other technological domains that will be that will be coming. So, so this is what I would um, what what I would really appreciate because you know there are two things that are sort of coming out of this endeavor if we do it successfully. First, the more successful we are, as you said, uh, the more we should talk about it because talking about it is the only thing that will create a deterrence. Uh, of us being such a success uh, in, in this domain. So deterrence is in the very core of, of 
of those exercises so that the adversaries know that this is not a vulnerability anymore and it could pay costly. And second, it should help us building some sort of a security identity besides the traditional security framework we know, like the defense industries, the defense R&D, but the citizenry. So it's not only on the citizens level, but the key high-tech players, uh, so that they have some identity that is related to the security of the country, of the alliance, of our, of, uh, of our way of life. That was a fantastic intervention. We have only a couple of minutes left. So Deputy Secretary Joanna, I'm gonna give you the last word, my friend. What party, Parthian shot would you like to fire? Parting words for uh, us to focus on as we go forward in this area. Uh, I believe that um, our transatlantic uh, community and also the like-minded democratic nations around the world, we have to, to, to build upon our national and multinational experience on resilience, a more integrated block of knowledge, lessons learned and um, uh, real steps that we need to take. Uh, it's not a proposition, it's just as a, as, a, as a thought. As in new technologies, we are always speaking of a depository uh, of, uh, or if you want an encyclopedia, if you want, uh, of the meanings and the definitions and the best practices and, and, and uh, uh, sharing with each other the strong points that we have in our countries, in our societies, but also the weak spots. As one of my, uh, my, the colleagues of our conversation mentioned, sometimes you could find in a big network a gap someplace which is totally outside of your realm of national control. So what I would really say in, 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 in NATO parlance, if you want, I think we have to build a sort of a, the interoperability of resilience. I love that phrase. I think that's a really important way to think about our challenge. And I'd like to thank you three distinguished practitioners of that for being with us this morning, helping educate and build the resilience of all of our cooperation. And I'd like to close by thanking my outstanding colleague, Elizabeth Bra, for conceptualizing this, bringing us all together as we think about the triple helix of societal resilience in the democratic West. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.